Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is an apostrophe podcast production. is We Regret to Inform You, The Rejection Podcast. With two full seasons under our belt, we can safely guesstimate that our series researcher, Allison, has done about 500 hours of digging, of poring over books and articles, watching documentaries, listening to podcasts, and, when we're really lucky, conducting interviews. Out of those 500 hours, we've done almost 40 episodes, like Lisa Kudrow, Fred Van Vliet, Charles Schultz, James Dyson, Jay-Z, and Lucille Ball. But we've also come across several fascinating rejection stories that we've been forced to shelve, mainly because they aren't long enough to cover an entire 30 to 40 minute episode. Maybe the rejection was contained to a specific period in someone's life, or maybe they just have fewer miles on their odometer, but it doesn't mean their stories are any less packed with insight. So, we regret to inform you, this is our final episode of the 2021 season. But it's our first ever short stories episode, a collection of some of our favorite pint-sized rejections. There were so many categories to choose from. Olympic athletes, authors, guitarists, founders. But for this inaugural short stories episode, we're leaning into Moira Rose's favorite season, 
awards. Here are short stories in television. My house burned down. I had three dollars in my bank account, and I hadn't worked in close to two years. Annie Murphy. Growing up in her hometown of Ottawa, Ontario, Annie Murphy was an only child, so she had to get creative with playtime. She says she wasn't necessarily the imaginary friend type, but she would create imaginary worlds, fantastical realms that leapt off the pages of her journals and books, and get lost in the stories. By age eight, she was granted the role of hyena number two in her school's second-grade production of Green Cheese Pie, written by her homeroom teacher. And by the time the curtain came all the way down, she knew she'd been bitten by the acting bug. By high school, Murphy was a certified right-brainer, a capital B bookworm, and self-described proud theater nerd. So, come time for university, she packed her things and headed two hours due east to Concordia University in Montreal to study theater. She says she loved the experience and the city, but the opportunities for parts left something to be desired. In the six years she'd spend in one of the top art cities in Canada, the best role she could land was quote hot werewolf with no lines. When Montreal didn't pan out the way she'd hoped, Murphy picked up and moved again, this time to Toronto. There, the budding actress landed a two-episode arc on the television show Blue Mountain State. But that aside, the roles weren't coming. She says sometimes she'd sit by the phone for three weeks, willing it to ring. But the voice on the other end telling her she'd landed her big break never came. More likely, it would come down to Murphy and one other actress, and she'd lose the part. She says by the second week of not hearing back, it's safe to say you're not the one. She flew to Los Angeles for what's known as pilot season, the annual Hollywood feeding frenzy, where the few shows that managed to survive both the elevator pitch process and the pilot script process get the chance to produce a pilot episode, gunning for a rare and coveted primetime spot. With virtually no money in her bank account, the best Murphy could do was rent a bedroom off a stranger and fellow struggling actor on Craigslist. And that stranger turned out to be, let's just say, a disciple of method acting. When Murphy arrived at his doorstep, the man informed her she was welcome to take the only bedroom because he would be sleeping in the closet. He was prepping for a role as a soldier in Afghanistan by getting himself used to confined spaces. Murphy said she'd be sitting on the couch eating soup thinking she was alone when suddenly he'd burst out of the closet all wild-eyed. She said it was one of the saddest, loneliest times of her life. Over the following years, Murphy landed more one-off roles, like a daycare worker number two on Flashpoint, a short film, and a walk-on part on Rookie Blue. Then six months passed, and Murphy hadn't landed a role. Then a year passed. Then she found herself just shy of the two-year mark. When the phone rang, her apartment had burned down. 
in a freak accident in 2013, Annie Murphy's Toronto apartment building caught fire, leaving her entire home destroyed, along with most of her belongings. Luckily, Murphy was safe. She was visiting her parents at the time. But it was a total devastation, compounding what she says was already a bleak time. She hadn't worked in two years. She had all of $3 to her name. Her home was gone. And she says she absolutely blew her most recent audition. So one day, she waded into the Pacific Ocean, sobbing. And she decided it was time to stop ignoring all the neon signs the universe was flashing in her direction. She'd given acting her all. She was almost 30. So she screamed out into the crashing waves that once and for all, she was going to give up acting. Maybe she'd go to secretarial school instead. The very next morning, Murphy's agent sent her audition scenes for a brand new Canadian television series. Having just given up on the industry, she was prepared to blow it off. But when she took a closer look at the pages, she saw the names Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara attached. Murphy says she basically blacked out. But when she came to, she decided she had to try for a part. She figured at the very least, maybe she'd get to meet the great Eugene Levy. But there was one more unusual name on the script. The show was titled Shit's Creek. Murphy took a breath and walked into the audition room, where she was greeted by not Eugene Levy, but his son, Dan Levy, co-creator of the series alongside his father. Dan said Murphy walked in with a messy bun on her head and some sort of bohemian shawl over her shoulders. She learned a little more about the show. It told the story of a wealthy family who loses everything. Everything except one singular asset. The deed to a small town in the middle of nowhere, aptly called Schitt's Creek. And there, they're forced to live together in a rundown motel. The rest of the family was already cast. Dan Levy as the son, Eugene Levy as the father, and Catherine O'Hara as the Rose family matriarch. But they needed to find the perfect actress to play the bubbly and, at times, frivolous socialite daughter, Alexis. And they were having trouble. Dan said most actresses who tried for the part had created more of a caricature of Alexis. And he wanted someone who could simultaneously bring surface and depth to the role. Murphy performed her scenes and left feeling good. She said for the first time in her life, she walked out of an audition knowing she did all she could do in that room. Then a couple days later, Murphy got a call from Dan Levy. He wanted her to come try for another role. This time, not Alexis, but Stevie, the local motel clerk. So Murphy tested for Stevie. Then three full weeks passed, and she heard nothing. She said it was par for the course. Then her phone rang. This time, the call display read Eugene Levy. Murphy was too stressed and overwhelmed to answer a call from comedy legend Eugene Levy. So she didn't pick up the phone. She just stared at it until it stopped ringing. 
then finally, she worked up the courage to call back. Dan Levy answered, and Murphy says Dan proceeded to say exactly what she thought he would. He thanked her for coming in and told her he appreciated her time and what she did with the lines. It was a classic, thanks-but-no-thanks rejection call she'd received a million times before. So Murphy says she put on a brave face. She thanked him for the opportunity through a trembling voice while trying to coax tears back into her eyes. But just before they hung up, Dan asked one last question. He said, How would you like to play my sister on the show? Annie Murphy was cast alongside Eugene Levy, Catherine O'Hara, and Dan Levy as lead character Alexis Rose. One, she says, was equal parts Goldie Hawn, Paris Hilton, and the Olsen twins, plus a signature wrist action she describes as a T-Rex playing piano in an old-timey saloon. Schitt's Creek premiered on January 13, 2015, on CBC in Canada and Pop TV in the U.S. Right off the bat, the Toronto Star said the series laid the canvas for smart writing, future in-jokes, throwaway lines, and subtle asides delivered with deadpan precision. In terms of ratings, the show had a wobbly start. But two seasons in, it landed on Netflix, and everything changed. By its sixth season, the sleeper hit would earn 19 Emmy nominations, sweeping the 2020 Emmy Awards in its final season, with wins in all major comedy categories, including Best Series, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actor, Best Director, Best Writing, and Best Supporting Actress for one Annie Murphy. Murphy says the day she ignored that phone call from Eugene Levy, her life changed forever. Eugene Levy says Annie Murphy was the find of the century. She's a Lamborghini. She's a Hollywood star. The film I was working on failed to get financing. I couldn't work for a year. We had to take out loans. My mother, myself, and my grandmother. Huang Dong-kyuk. By Huang Dong-kyuk's 38th birthday, his life looked nothing like he'd hoped. Teetering on midlife, broke, and out of work. He was a filmmaker and screenwriter born and raised in Seoul, South Korea. He attended Seoul National University to study journalism, but it was there that he also made several short films, solidifying his future career in the movie industry. After earning his Bachelor of Arts, Huang flew all the way across the globe to the movie capital of the world, Los Angeles, where he studied film production at the University of Southern California, earning himself a Master of Fine Arts. In his time at USC, Huang continued to sharpen his filmmaking skills. He wrote and created more short films. One in particular was called Miracle Mile, about a young Korean woman who arrives in L.A. in search of her brother, who was sent to America decades earlier for adoption. The film went on to screen at over 40 international film festivals, including the prestigious Cannes Film Festival and won multiple awards. 
Suddenly, Huang was on the map. He returned to South Korea with the makings of an impressive career. So, what happened? Despite his initial success, after college, Huang suddenly found himself searching for financing smack dab in the middle of the 2008 recession, which brought his promising career to a grinding halt. Without investors, he couldn't get his ideas off the ground. His mother had recently retired, and Huang hadn't seen a single dime in an entire year. So he, his mother, and his grandmother were forced to take out loans to support their family. Huang says it was a low point in his life. So he sought relief at local comic book cafes, getting lost in the colorful pages as a welcome escape. His favorites were what's known as survival game comics. Survival games are a genre of comic books where characters are essentially forced, usually out of desperation, to take part in physical and psychological games, often in hostile environments wherein only one winner survives. As he turned the pages, Huang wondered what kind of person would ever partake in such a competition. Someone pretty desperate. Then he realized he could relate to these characters, people who would do anything to change their circumstances. And he thought, if he was offered to take part in a real-life survival game where the winner would win millions of dollars, would he do it? From a filmmaking perspective, it was an interesting thought. So he started writing a screenplay. When he was a child, Huang played a game called Squid Game. Basically, a version of tag where two teams battle it out over a squid-shaped board drawn in dirt or carved out in fields. He'd always been good at Squid Game. Compared to his survival comic books, those childhood games were significantly less complex, which he preferred, so he incorporated them into his film script. Simpler games would allow viewers to focus less on learning the rules and more so on the characters. Plus, a deadly twist on a classic children's game would prove to be an interesting juxtaposition. Think red light, green light, but with machine guns. The premise would be an allegory about modern capitalist society, one that depicts the extreme polarization and growing disparities between the wealthy and the poor, not only in South Korea, but across the globe. 456 players competing to the death for a chance at winning 40 million US dollars. His script focused on player number 456, a broke 38-year-old, hopelessly indebted gambling addict living with his mother, desperate to change the trajectory of his life. He'd call it Squid Game. The writing process for Huang was intense, so much so that he would often drink half a bottle of Korean liquor just to get the adequate creative juices flowing. But in the time it took him to pen the full script, his family fell deeper and deeper into debt and Huang was forced to make an unconscionable decision as a screenwriter to sell his laptop for $675. With his script and his pitch freshly rehearsed, 
Wang started approaching Korean investors to get his idea financed. But immediately, they bristled at the brutality of the game. So he took another meeting. But there, he was told the whole concept of human beings competing to the death for cash seemed entirely implausible. This was confusing. Because that very year, a popular book was released called The Hunger Games by Suzanne Collins, which told the story of children competing to the death. But it didn't seem to matter. Huang was rejected for one year, then two years, then three. And just like his characters, he became more and more in debt and more and more desperate. By 2011, Huang decided to shelve Squid Game. He was getting nowhere with investors, so the filmmaker switched gears and started working on another film called Silenced about sexual abuse. Silenced got financing. In fact, it became a major hit in Asia, allowing Huang, the film's writer and director, to pay the bills for a while, supporting himself, his mother, and his grandmother. After that film's success, Huang went back to pitching Squid Game, but investors, studios, and actors reportedly labeled it weird and grotesque. They said there was no market for capitalism satire and wondered aloud how a motion picture association would even rate such a film. Nine years passed since he first came up with the idea. By 2017, he'd made two more films, The Fortress, a war drama, and Miss Granny, a musical comedy. Amazingly, Miss Granny became one of the most successful Korean films of all time, even getting remade in several other languages, making Huang one of the most successful filmmakers in the country. Little did he know, across the globe at Netflix HQ, the streaming giant was pledging to invest $700 million in Korean film and television shows by the year 2020. So, the now successful filmmaker was able to land a meeting, and he knew exactly what to pitch. In 2018, at 50 years old, Huang Dong-kyuk sat in front of the Netflix team and pitched Squid Game. Ten years had passed since he'd penned the original script, and ten different sets of investors had rejected him outright. But ten years ago, the world looked very different. Huang says he realized all the reasons his script was called unrealistic in 2008 seemed to disappear by 2018. With Donald Trump in power, political polarization, racial and economic disparity were top of mind. And what nobody could have predicted was that just a couple years later, a global pandemic would exacerbate those disparities even further. And suddenly, to a company like Netflix, the concept of human beings acting out of desperation didn't seem so implausible after all. Plus, Netflix didn't have to worry so much about what a movie would be rated. They didn't have to comply with advertisers and networks. So, the streaming giant bought Squid Game. After years facing nothing but red lights, it was finally greenlit. But there was one little change. It wouldn't be a film, but rather a nine-episode television series. 
As creator, director, and writer, Huang spent six months perfecting the first two episodes, consulting with friends and doing rewrites. He says television was a whole new ball game, and filming proved to be just as difficult. Squid Game had 456 characters, and in the wider shots, all 456 had to move around in synchronicity. As they filmed the first episodes, Huang kept getting new ideas and going back to revise his scripts. Production was so intense, he lost sleep and six of his teeth due to the crushing stress. Because the film starred mostly Korean actors, Netflix decided to give non-Korean-speaking viewers the choice to watch the show with either subtitles or dubbing. Though Huang is adamant that the subtitled experience is better because it maintains the real actors' voices. Netflix also emphasized visuals to offset the language barrier, outfitting the game's competitors in green tracksuits and building colorful sets to mimic children's playgrounds. When Netflix released the show's trailer, it amassed 18 million views. Yet, when Netflix released the series, they didn't market it heavily in the United States. But word of mouth spread quickly across the globe. Tweets and comments came flooding in about how relevant the show was to the current state of the world. Squid Game was translated into 30 languages, becoming the first non-English language title to find massive viewership in the United States. And soon, 95% of the show's viewers were outside of South Korea. Ten full years since he first began pitching Squid Game to investors. Ten years after the Great Recession. Ten years after his mother and grandmother were forced to take out loans to support the family. Ten years of rejection for a story that was called bizarre, unrealistic, and unmarketable. And yet, just ten days after its release, Squid Game reached number one in 90 countries surpassing Bridgerton as the most-watched television show in Netflix history. We'll be right back. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The audition process is horrible. It's such a hard thing. Matt LeBlanc. Matt LeBlanc says growing up in Newton, Massachusetts, every one of his family members went to work in the morning with some sort of tool in their hands. His father was a marine diesel mechanic. His mother worked in the manufacturing of circuit breakers. And he would be no different. By age 14, LeBlanc was a carpenter's apprentice. Weekends were spent in his garage or barn. Weeknights, assisting his high school's shop teacher. After high school, LeBlanc went to college in Boston to study building construction technology. But he quickly realized his nights spent framing houses in the New England snow gave him a pretty good education already. Why pay to learn something he already knew when he could get paid to go out and do it in the real world? So LeBlanc dropped out of college in his first year and became a full-time carpenter. That summer, he decided to make his way down to New York to visit a friend. He was walking down a busy Manhattan street when a complete stranger caught his attention. Walking toward LeBlanc was a beautiful woman who, as they passed each other, turned back to check him out. He did the same, and suddenly the pair burst out laughing. Turns out, the woman was an actress on her way to an audition for a soap opera. And there was something about LeBlanc that made her think maybe he too could be an actor. So she gave him her manager's card. By some stroke of luck, LeBlanc persuaded said manager to take him on as a client, despite his lack of experience. But he'd need some headshots. So LeBlanc found a nearby photography studio. But when he got there, the photographer stopped him. He said, you have one front tooth longer than the other. You might want to get the longer one filed. All right, then. So LeBlanc found a dentist. 
but they told him it would cost $80. So he asked the dentist to show him what type of instrument he'd used to file down a tooth. It looked kind of like an emery board. LeBlanc knew his way around a tool, so he marched right down to the local drugstore and bought himself a three-pack of emery boards, where he began filing down his own tooth. When he made his way back to the studio, the photographer said, Perfect. Your dentist did a nice job. Soon, his new manager landed him commercial work for Heinz, Levi's, Doritos, and Coca-Cola, plus two music videos, one for Alanis Morissette and the other for John Bon Jovi. LeBlanc says the first year was fantastic. The second year was even better. He was somewhere between a model and an actor. But he figured, if he was going to pursue show business long-term, he should probably take a couple acting classes. And he says the next logical step was to start testing for television shows. In 1988, LeBlanc took an audition for a series called TV 101. It was a CBS drama being filmed in Los Angeles, and he got the part. He flew to L.A. where they began shooting the first season. And before he knew it, he was calling Hollywood home. But by the 13th episode, TV 101 was pulled from the TV guide. It was canceled. Three years later, LeBlanc landed a three-episode arc as Vinnie Vernaducci on Married with Children, playing Al Bundy's friend's son. Those three episodes led to his character being reprised in the show's spin-off called Top of the Heap. Top of the Heap then led to a second spin-off called Vinnie and Bobby, starring LeBlanc. But the spin-offs only lasted seven episodes each before ratings tanked and both series were canceled. Suddenly, LeBlanc was out of work. Booking only minor parts in TV movies and an uncredited part in another music video, LeBlanc says he entered a major drought. Over the last few years, he'd at least made enough money to pay rent. Now, he was worried he'd starve. In 1994, he booked a pilot, but it didn't get picked up. So he booked another pilot, but again, it went nowhere. So he booked a third pilot, but was ultimately rejected for the role. He says the audition process was horrible. He was down to his last $11. LeBlanc realized he'd waited too long to get a real job. There were too many variables in acting. Sometimes he'd read with actors, sometimes with the casting director, other times just with the person running the camera who's really just buying time until their next smoke break. Even if he became a waiter at this point, that $11 would run out before his first paycheck. He was getting nervous. Then his agent got him an audition for his fourth pilot of the season. So LeBlanc made his way to the casting. LeBlanc says the show's brief was essentially six friends hanging out, and he was vying for one of them. He went in to audition, he did his best, and they liked him, so he got a call back. He went in to audition again, and he got another call back, so he auditioned again and got a call back. So he auditioned a fourth time. This time, they had him read lines with actress Courtney Cox, who'd already been cast as another one of the friends. 
and he got another call back. So LeBlanc went in to audition for a fifth time. Then his agent called. He got the pilot. LeBlanc says he doesn't remember what he was wearing or what he was eating when that phone rang, for one main reason. He'd already landed three pilots that year. Yes, landing another one meant a little more change in his pocket. Yes, the script was good. Yes, the director, Jim Burroughs, had the Midas touch. Yes, Courtney Cox was semi-known at the time. That helped. But even all these factors didn't mean lightning would strike and the pilot would turn into a successful television show. The five other friends were cast. Courtney Cox, Lisa Kudrow, Jennifer Aniston, Matthew Perry, and David Schwimmer. LeBlanc's character would be named Joey Tribbiani. And they shot the pilot. The next week, before the cast had even seen the episode for themselves, Jim Burroughs flew the six leads out to Las Vegas. They were all broke, so Burroughs gave them each $500 to gamble. Then he got them a big round table in the very center of the Spago restaurant at Caesar's Palace. And he said to them, Look around. Do you see that? They said, No. What? He said, Nobody's looking at you. Take it in. Because this is the last time you'll be able to do this without all eyes on you. And the show was officially named Friends. Right off the bat, Friends wasn't a huge hit. It made the top 20, but tensions were running high. LeBlanc had done several single seasons of series that were ultimately pulled. But by the summer after the first season, the reruns aired on NBC, and the show completely took off. Friends cracked the top five and stayed there for six straight seasons. LeBlanc says it was like somebody strapped a jetpack onto his back and lit the fuse. The $11 in his pocket grew exponentially, and LeBlanc bought himself a house in the Hollywood Hills, where helicopters frequently hovered, hoping to catch a glimpse of the actor heading off to set. Friends became a pop culture phenomenon and a staple of NBC's Thursday night must-see TV, bringing in 30 million viewers per week, 52 million in its series finale, and earning Matt LeBlanc three Emmy nominations. In the end, Joey Tribbiani was an Italian-American struggling actor who scoured cafe couch cushions for enough change to buy a coffee. LeBlanc had spent a lifetime preparing for the role. It took me three full decades to get The Queen's Gambit on television. Alan Scott. Screenwriter Alan Scott was born in 1939. He's known for films like Don't Look Now, starring Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie, The Preacher's Wife with Whitney Houston and Denzel Washington, and Regeneration, starring Jonathan Price. Plus, producing credits like Shallow Grave and Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. But back in 1989, just after his 50th birthday, a director handed him a copy of a novel. He said, read this book. 
I think you'll like it. It was written just five years earlier by author Walter Tevis. The novel told the story of a young female chess prodigy on her quest to become a world champion, delving into the topics of feminism, adoption, and addiction. Tevis has said of his novel, it's a tribute to brainy women. It was called The Queen's Gambit. Scott says before he reached page 25, he knew it was an important story. So he purchased an option on the book for one year to try bringing it to the big screen. He started pitching it to studios, but the enthusiasm stopped with him. Studios felt chess was far too dull a subject to draw a box office crowd, and Scott was rejected. By the end of the year, the option expired. So the next year, he optioned it again, and the next year, and the next year after that, renewing it annually as he tried to persuade studios to come aboard. But by 1993, he still had no takers. Sick of optioning the rights to the novel over and over and over again, Scott decided to dig into his own pockets and buy the rights to the book himself. That way, he owned them indefinitely for as long as it took. Scott wrote the screenplay, then rewrote it nine times, and he started taking meetings with filmmakers to see if he could drum up any interest. He'd have lunches with famed director Bernardo Bertolucci of The Last Emperor every week. And one day, Scott put it all on the table. He said, come on, let's do this. And Bertolucci said, okay, we make the movie. But Scott says they did not make the movie. Bertolucci would become one in a long line of directors with whom he would not make the movie. He set up meetings with other directors, eight of them to be exact. But no one thought a movie about a chess player during the Cold War was worth attaching their names to. Scott says he won't embarrass all the people who turned him down. But here's what we do know. Eight meetings led to eight rejections. For a while, there was interest from writer Walter Hill, though it didn't last long. Then, by 2007, 18 years after he first picked up Tevis' novel in 1989, Scott finally got a bite. Heath Ledger became interested in the film. Scott and Ledger met in London when working on another project together. And while chatting one day, Ledger admitted he had been an Australian chess champion back in his youth. So Scott told him all about the Queen's Gambit, and he felt Ledger's passion for the idea begin to stir. Ledger had been on the hunt for a passion project to direct. He was just finishing up his final scenes for The Dark Knight in New York. So Scott would call him there, and the pair would talk for hours about what kind of music from the early 50s or 60s would work for the film, and what kind of actress should play the lead. By 8 o'clock one night, the pair hung up after yet another brainstorming session. The next morning, Scott's phone rang. Heath Ledger had died. Scott was shaken by the sudden death of his friend and collaborator, 
It was an absolute tragedy personally, and yet another disappointment professionally. Having Ledger show such interest in his screenplay gave Scott hope. He really thought this was it. Losing Ledger made him nearly give up on the project altogether. Soon, 20 years had passed since Scott first picked up a copy of The Queen's Gambit. He'd taken countless meetings, pitched countless executives, and done countless rewrites. But he was rejected over and over and over again. And then, one day, Alan Scott met another Scott, a man named Scott Frank. Frank had written the 1991 film Little Man Tate and received an Academy Award nomination for his 1998 film Out of Sight. And Frank said the second he read The Queen's Gambit, he realized up until that point he'd never truly been in the presence of great writing, including his own. This book was a masterclass in storytelling. So Scott and Frank joined forces. In 2017, Frank was working on his first television show, a Netflix miniseries called Godless, and he had an epiphany. Scott had been pitching his story for years as a film, but maybe, just maybe, that was his fatal flaw. Condensing such a story into two hours meant cutting out so much of what made the book wonderful. So he thought, what if The Queen's Gambit was a television show. And having just worked with Netflix, he proposed pitching the idea to the streaming giant as a limited series. They figured, like every other studio, Netflix would probably never want to make a show about a book about a little girl playing chess. But they went in for the pitch. To both Alan Scott and Scott Frank's utter shock, Netflix bought The Queen's Gambit almost immediately. Frank turned Scott's screenplay into seven episodes, and they began shooting with Frank and Scott as co-creators and Frank as director. But it wasn't all smooth sailing from there. Frank became increasingly concerned about the actual chess scenes. He wasn't an experienced player himself, and the key was to make the tiny moves that happen on an 8x8 grid seem dramatic and exciting, even for viewers who don't know a whole lot about chess. So he made an executive decision to show the board less and instead focus on the game's emotional stakes, using long takes, quick cuts, time lapses, and split-screen close-ups of the players' faces. They cast actress Anya Taylor-Joy as the lead. And finally, on October 23, 2020, three decades after Alan Scott first picked up a copy of Walter Tevis' novel, The Queen's Gambit appeared on Netflix. One month later, the show received 60 million views. It achieved an impressive 100% critic score on Rotten Tomatoes, winning 11 Emmys, two Golden Globes, and, perhaps most impressive, it even led to a dramatic increase in eBay chess set purchases by 250%. Despite years being told the subject matter was too dull, Stephen King called the series utterly thrilling. The Queen's Gambit hit number one in 63 countries, proving that even after a 30-year stalemate, 
one can still emerge a world champion. Rejection comes in many sour flavors, but the way you react to rejection determines everything. Annie Murphy sat by the phone for years hoping it would ring. When it did, it was to tell her that her apartment burned down. She was just about to abandon her dream when the phone rang one last time, and that call changed her life. So often, when people felt they were at their lowest point, their breakthrough happened. Like we saw this season with Nick Offerman, Mark Ruffalo, and Kurt Warner. When you realize you can survive the most punishing rejections, you know you can survive anything. Matt LeBlanc came from a long line of successful tradesmen. His life seemed predetermined. Then a chance encounter on the street changed everything. LeBlanc was open in that moment to letting the universe steer him another way. As we get older and more set in our ways, our willingness to entertain chance diminishes. But maybe, just maybe, we should keep a foot in the door to let chance slip through, even when we aren't young and green anymore. Huang Dong-yok wrote Squid Game when he was 38 years old. It finally got made when he was 50. So many of the stories we've told were about people who chased their dreams for years, like Lucille Ball, who hit it big at 40, and RuPaul, who broke through at 49, and director Norman Jewison, who battled endless rejection to get Moonstruck made at 61. Then, there's Alan Scott. He read The Queen's Gambit at the age of 50, but he was rejected by studios over and over and over again. He had so many false starts along the way with Bernardo Bertolucci, Walter Hill, and the death of Heath Ledger. He was told that a story about chess was too dull. Then it happened. Netflix gave The Queen's Gambit a green light. 60 million viewings and 11 Emmys later, Alan Scott finally realized his dream at 81. Rejection happens to all of us, in all fields, in all stages of our careers, at all ages. You can be a success at 21, or you can be a success at 81. 98% abandon their dreams. The remaining 2% are the people this podcast is all about. Never, ever give up. We regret to inform you, The Rejection Podcast. Actors, 12. TV shows and movies, 9. Musicians, 7. Athletes, 5. Inventors, 3. Authors, 3. Astronauts, 1. Rejections, countless.
The Rejection Podcast is an apostrophe podcast production recorded in an Airstream mobile recording studio, which was rejected from its original gig as a mobile home. This series is hosted and written by me, Sydney O'Reilly. I was heartbroken when my dream job wasn't hiring, so I started apostrophe podcasts with my fellow O's. Now, I do my actual dream job every single day engineer Jeff Devine, who was rejected for entry-level marketing positions, allowing him to discover his true love of sound design. Director Callie O'Reilly, who dropped out of art school due to a free-falling GPA, leading her straight to a career in audio directing. Researcher Allison Pinches was rejected for a job at Starbucks, which, if she got it, would have been a grande mistake, because she wouldn't have had time to pursue her ultimate goals. Producer, Debbie O'Reilly, who's repeatedly tried getting herself rejected from producing this series. But it's a family business, so we reject her requests. The music by Ian Lefevre, who bombed his first gig as a commercial director, showing him that his true calling in life was composting. Oops, sorry, that's composing. And Ari Posner, who was rejected from the high school basketball team, which is probably a good thing, since he's five foot four. Luckily, not such an issue in the music business. Major sources for this and every episode are listed in the show notes on our website, apostrophepodcasts.ca slash rejection. Follow us on social at apostrophepod. This series is executive produced by Terry O'Reilly, who was rejected by 61 advertising agencies in his 20s. The only job he could get was at a radio station, and it's the best thing that ever happened to him. Have a safe and happy holiday. We'll see you soon for more Rejection in Season 3. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.